Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. Hi, I'm Michael Ewald, host of Credit Hour. In part two of our series on PTSD, we interview Associate Professor of Biomedical Sciences, Lee Baugh, about the genetic variables that play a role in PTSD. We also discuss his research at the Center for Genetics and Behavioral Health and their mission to develop an effective screen for the disorder. Lee, how's it going today? Pretty well. Yourself? Good, good. Um, Now, you're in a are an associate professor of basic biomedical science here at USD. I'm curious, can you just first define what is basic biomedical science? Uh, That's a good question, and it's actually harder to define than you might think. Uh, Essentially, it's sciences uh, within um, the field of medicine that aren't quite at the stage typically of working with patients, but rather laying the foundation, uh, what we would call preclinical research, that other uh, individuals may build upon to uh, improve the treatment uh, of patients. Now, you have a master's and a PhD from the University of Manitoba in brain and cognitive science. Um, you also have an undergraduate degree in psychology. I'm curious about the connection between you know, those two fields. Was it a difficult challenge to kind of jump back into, you know, a, a, I guess, a hard science related um, field for your post bachelor programs? Yeah, so when I was going through undergraduate studies, there really wasn't a uh, cognitive science or neuroscience program. Uh, They were few and far between. So what a lot of people that were going through at the same time um, that I was across the country were doing was uh, getting a foundation in psychology, since that's the study of human behavior, which obviously has a lot to do with the brain, uh, at least in an indirect way. So making that transition from um, psychology to brain and cognitive sciences um, is just more Uh, recalling and beefing up the biological side of things. So what the brain looks like, what it does, how it functions. But a lot of the concepts and a lot of the research topics are actually quite close together. You know, what interested you in this particular field of study? Um, So I guess uh, going through undergrad, I was sort of torn between uh, forensic psychology and cognitive neuroscience, which are two um, fields that are uh, that at the time were still growing. And uh, there was a lot of room to really um, get your feet wet and see um, advance as these fields themselves advance. So that was exciting. And then what uh, ultimately made me go the cognitive neuroscience route was so many people were interested in forensic psychology as it was becoming popular in television. Uh, I just got tired of people asking me, oh, well, do you profile killers? Um, and decided that, you know, I'll, I'll study the the brain instead. <laughs> um, that's interesting. You know, a lot of your work here at USD is, is centered around something called the Center for Genetics and Behavioral Health. Um, yeah, I'm curious if you can just tell us what the center, you know, studies and what its purpose is. Yeah, so the uh, Center for Genetics and Behavioral Health uh, was um, a product of a Governor Research Center grant um, that was awarded. Uh, last year um, that allowed us to bring together faculty from multiple departments, both on campus and from Avera Health. Um, So we have members from the psychology department, from basic biomedical sciences, from computer science, um, and then from um, Avera itself to come together and study um, some of the uh, often uh, left out or missing components of what goes into the generation of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, what is post-traumatic stress disorder? I don't know if you can define it maybe for the audience. 
Yeah, so it's a condition uh, that we've known about for um, essentially hundreds of years. Um, ever since people have been exposed to trauma, what's really changed about it is the way that it's been framed. Uh, so uh, during the days when railway travel was very common, um, you'd hear it referred to as railroad spine um, because traveling the railways was so dangerous with uh, trains jumping off of the tracks and the potential of getting held up by bandits or something like that. Um, this generation of a a psychological state where you have an increased fear uh, response to what normally wouldn't be fearful stimuli uh, were, uh, were to arise. In uh, World War I, it was known as shell shock uh, for the same sort of reason. So you see it described uh, based on the really traumatic events that were going on at the time. Um, but at its heart, it really is a, a magnified response to stimuli uh, in a fearful manner that probably shouldn't be there. You know, in some of the background research that you provided me, one thing that I thought was really interesting was that, you know, the national average for PTSD, and obviously I, I think we'll get into discussion why maybe some of the rates are is really difficult to quantify. Um, it was something like 3.5%, but in South Dakota, you know, South Dakotans suffer at a rate, you know, anywhere between 6 and 10%. I'm curious if you can hypothesize why people in South Dakota might suffer from PTSD at an increased rate like this. Yeah, that's one of the questions that we're hoping to answer with this study. Um, one of the things that we think is going on is just the base participation in military activities. South Dakota has a, a per capita a greater enrollment in the armed services than some other states. So obviously these individuals are being exposed to scenarios that are more likely to uh, foster post-traumatic stress disorder. But um, what we're seeing is there's definitely um, genetic predispositions and psychological predispositions predis uh, that are going to be playing into things. And that's what we're hoping um, through this collaborative effort to try and get a better handle on. When you talk about the kind of genetic predisposition, is it, you know, as simple that PTSD may be hereditary? Can everyone develop post-traumatic stress disorder depending on, you know, the, the trauma that they're exposed to? So that's another really interesting question that I think the field hasn't really come to a conclusion regarding. Um, we know that two individuals can experience the same stressful situation and have completely different responses. One individual may go on to generate uh, PTSD while the other does not. Um, we know that genetics play a role in this. We don't think it's as simple as, um, you know, your uh, parents were prone to PTSD, their grandparents were prone to PTSD, therefore I'm prone to PTSD. We really think it's a, a complicated combination of uh, genetic predisposition, uh, environmental factors, um, and then also uh, psychological factors. And the unique way that they combine in each individual is what's going to ultimately predict whether they're likely to generate PTSD or not. You know, what what sort of impact does PTSD have on society? I'm curious, you know, again, in some of the research that you sent me, it talked about, you know, predisposition towards drug and alcohol abuse. I'm wondering if, um, you know, PTSD might, you know, make you more susceptible to any other diseases or any other conditions. Yeah, we certainly uh, see a lot of uh, both comorbidities. So when uh, post-traumatic stress disorder co-occurs with another psychological or physical disorder um, and alcohol and substance abuse is probably 
probably the best known of those. Um, we think a large portion of that has to do with individuals essentially self-medicating. Um, one of the things that we know uh, with post-traumatic stress disorder is because these individuals are having these elevated fear responses, one of the ways that you can dampen that um, is to self-medicate with alcohol or drug use. So you see much higher um, rates of uh, drug dependence and alcohol abuse and dependence in these populations. But um, there could also be um, some similar uh, environmental and genetic conditions that result in uh, predisposition to these other conditions as well. So we're trying to find out uh, among one of the, the many questions that we have is whether these individuals going into um, these situations are already predisposed or more likely to generate substance use and uh, alcohol dependencies than individuals that don't develop post-traumatic stress disorder, or if it's the case that once you have post-traumatic stress disorder, you're more likely to have these other conditions tag on. Well, I think that's what's really interesting about the research that's happening at the center is is one of the goals is to produce or develop a screen or a test um, for post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, I don't know if you can talk a little bit about what that process is like trying to develop you know, a test kind of like like that for something so complicated, um, but also the impact that, you know, a test like that might be able to provide. Yeah. So uh, I think the complexity of the question uh, is best reflected in the multidisciplinary nature of the team that we have working on this. So we do have experts in um, neuroscience and brain imaging like myself who uh, fill the role of being able to scan these individuals' brains with something like functional magnetic resonance imaging and see how their brain function is different from someone that doesn't have post-traumatic stress disorder. We have the expertise of geneticists who are able to um, actually run genome-wide genetic screens on these individuals to see if there's any component of their genetic makeup that makes them more susceptible. We have psychologists on board that spend a lot of time interviewing these patients and speaking with them uh, to try and determine what their mental health was like before this happened, how it's changed as a result of the development of PTSD. So uh, whenever you have the necessity to bring apart or to bring together all of these individuals, um, you can tell that it's a pretty complicated question. Of course, the Um, potential advantage to this is currently there's no way to tell whether someone, when put in a stressful situation, is going to develop post-traumatic stress disorder, and it would be a huge benefit to be able to identify these individuals ahead of time and then say, well, you know, maybe this isn't the best career choice for this individual uh, because they are susceptible to this. And there's also the side um, following the generation of PTSD when it comes to guiding treatment. This is another area where currently we're uh, severely lacking in our ability to tailor our treatments to an individual. Um, What works for one person may have no benefit to another. So we're hoping by combining uh, genetics and neuroimaging and uh, psychological profiles of these individuals that will be able to say, um, firstly, whether they're likely to generate post-traumatic stress disorder, and if so, what treatment would be best for this individual. So really personalizing their medical treatment. You know, I know that this research is ongoing and you haven't um, you know, published any hard findings yet. I'm curious, are there any you know, common risk factors that you've been able to identify you know, just kind of right off the bat that, that seem to be kind of reoccurring in some of the cases that you study? 
Um, so I would, I'd have to agree that it's probably a little early to make those sorts of um, claims. We certainly see that there are uh, common risk factors for the generation of, uh, I mean, the most common risk factor is exposure to a stressful situation. Um, and I think that would be the only one that I would feel comfortable at this point saying, you know, this is something that we know is related. Um, there are a lot of, uh, like we were talking about before, conditions that are comorbid with PTSD. Um, but until we get in a real good handle on the uh, question as to whether it's correlative in nature versus causative. Um, so whether these individuals generate post-traumatic stress disorder because they had these pre-existing conditions or it just so happens that um, whatever is responsible for both of these conditions is shared, um, it, I'm, yeah, I wouldn't feel um, incredibly confident. And as a scientist, uh, I like to, to make sure that I'm right when I say things. So no, that's fair. You, know, you talked about a, a little bit about kind of the current lack of treatment for PTSD. What is, I guess, the current treatment if, if someone suffers from it? Is it um, counseling? Are there you know drugs that help? Is it uh, more holistic than that? I, I'm curious what the current kind of treatment is. Yeah, so uh, the treatment's going to vary uh, depending on the individual. Uh, and for the most part, um, it's going to be some combination of pharmacological treatment with uh, therapy. So uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is probably one of the more common ones where individuals are forced to um, confront their uh, cognitions or their thoughts and their thought process when it comes to being exposed to stimuli that generate this uh, post-traumatic stress response um, to really force them to question whether that's a rational response or not um, and to try and reevaluate the cognitions that they're having to bring it more in line with what we would see from someone who's not suffering from uh, PTSD. Uh, the other treatment on the uh, pharmacology side, um, you see a lot of antidepressant usage, you see a lot of anti-anxiety medications because um, a lot of these uh, both are comorbid and there seems to be some evidence that uh, treating with these uh, pharmacological agents may uh, reduce the severity of post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, to change direction maybe a little bit, um, you talked about the importance, I guess, of collaborating with a lot of different partners on a project like this. Um, one of you know the partners with the center is obviously Avera. I'm curious what you know kind of knowledge or um, benefit you know the, these kind of public-private research partnerships are able to provide. Yeah, um, so it's something that we try and do um, as much as possible um, because the uh, the way that a private institute is set up has some advantages that we as uh, uh, faculty members um, just don't have the opportunity to do. So, for example, um, while the majority of my time is dedicated to research, obviously I still have um, teaching responsibilities, I have service responsibilities, um, and those are going to eat into some of the time that I can devote vote to answering questions such as this. Um, when dealing with private institutions, um, they don't have those same requirements. So those individuals are spending um, 40 hours every week um, working on uh, the, the research that they're doing. And uh, that's clearly an advantage and something that we'd like to have on our side is um, the level of dedication that they're able to bring to these projects. Um, additionally, the types of resources that they have may be substantially different than what we have. Um, so so we could, in theory, write a grant to get the equipment that's required to do the genetic screenings, um, and we could hire individuals to um, 
actually interpret that data, uh, but it would be such a, a misuse of funds um, when there is a very capable, um, excellent uh, genetic uh, uh, base of expertise or, or uh, expertise in genetics uh, fairly locally. These collaborations allow us to cut down on the resources that are required and to um, share expertise amongst um, all of the various partners. Do you have any current plans to study any other um, disorders and their relationships with genetics? Um, so uh, we certainly uh, have that on the horizon. Uh, PTSD was the first one that we picked uh, because of its uh, prevalence in South Dakota and because it being uh, seemingly a, a more and, and more important topic and uh, thing that requires treatment. Uh, but once you have this information and once you start to see the ways to fit um, various types of psychological and neuro and genetic information together, um, you can take what you learn from that and apply it to other disease states. Um, so uh, another one of my roles is as the director of uh, the Human Functional Imaging Corps here at the University of South Dakota. Um, and in that role, we work with uh, investigators um, at the university and external to the university for um, assisting them to do research with anything that looks at imaging the brain. Um, so whether it be functional magnet, uh, magnetic resonance imaging, transcranial magnetic stimulation, electroencephalography, um, we have the capability to assist them with doing those research projects. And what that means is, uh, as the director of that, I get exposed to just about every research question on campus where someone is interested in looking at the brain. So I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities in the future to take what we learn about how to examine post-traumatic stress disorder and apply it to some of these other areas where people have been knocking on our door and saying, you know, well, I think it'd be really interesting to study this condition. Uh, personally, my research is um, in motor control and uh, the deficits following stroke um, outside of the Center for Genetics and Behavioral Health. So um, clearly that's another area where I think we could have some uh, potential um, future research taking what we've learned from uh, this PTSD study. You know, I, there are a lot of philosophical questions about the brain. I'm curious what is maybe the most, the, the question you get asked, you know, most often by incoming students, maybe. Um, so uh, for better or for worse, I actually don't interact with students until they're in their fourth to fifth okay. year. Um, in the School of Medicine, we don't have an undergraduate program. Uh, so I'm dealing with uh, first year medical students and then uh, graduate students within basic biomedical sciences and some upper level undergraduates. So by that point, they've refined their thinking a little bit. Um, and I don't get asked the really wacky questions that I think you may get asked um, if you're doing an intro level psychology course, for example. Um, but I think one of the, the most common questions that people ask is, um, at least uh, over the past three or four years, is how close are we to generating these uh, cognitive architectures in computers? Um, so when am I going to be able to upload my consciousness into a computer and live forever? Um, I think that's probably the, the most common question that I get asked um, sort of uh, outside of the, the typical uh, realm of things. Um, you know, to, to, I guess, wrap up, you know, the interview, I'm curious if you can project maybe into the future a little bit, 5, 10, 15, 25 years from now, where are we going to be at with our study of, of post-traumatic stress disorder? Is it the type of disorder that you can ever cure um, or prevent totally? 
Um, I think in the past 10 years, we've made great strides in understanding how the disorder manifests and then um, have come a long way in terms of treatment. Uh, I wouldn't uh, say that it's out of the realm of possibility that um, we will certainly have over the next 10 years much more effective treatments for post-traumatic stress disorder. And there is a lot of research currently ongoing to looking at um, a prophylactic sort of approach where um, once you have identified someone who's susceptible to it, you can give them a shot that is going to alter the neurochemistry of their brain that will now allow them to be exposed to stimuli that normally would generate PTSD and now wouldn't. Um, I think uh, it's not unreasonable to think that we're going to make progress uh, over that five to ten year mark, whether we'll have it completely uh, cured by then. Um, I would like to say that it's a possibility. I'm optimistic, um, but I wouldn't bet on it um, if I was a betting person. Lee, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. Listening is 100% of the grade, so we hope you enjoyed the episode. Next week, we interview distinguished USD alumnus and South Dakota Governor Dennis Dugard. In the episode, we discuss what it was like to attend a one-room schoolhouse, his experience driving a bus in downtown Chicago in law school, and his proudest and most challenging days as governor. Until next time, go Yotes. Go Yotes.